Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. We are both on spring break at the same time. So I am not lording anything over you right now. <laughs> like I usually do. We are. I'm in such a good mood. I just wake up every morning and I'm like, la, 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 la. Because not only am I on spring break, but I've now got that new music festival behind me. And Ooh, I'm happy yeah. with how it went. And my loved ones are tired. We're tired of hearing about it. So now we can talk about other things. <laughs> well, tell us about it. We're not tired of hearing about it. Well, it just, you know, it was a lot of rep. It was a lot of juggling and a lot of anticipating. And then it happened and I was very happy with how it went. And so it was just kind of like, yeah, I'm ready to move on. How's your spring break been going? It's good. I feel like it just started, even though we're recording on a Monday and it technically started on Friday afternoon. But I played a concert in Mobile this weekend and it was actually a great English horn. I got to play second oboe in English horn and I got to play uh, the William Grant still Afro-American symphony. Oh, that's got a great English horn solo. Ooh, in it. it has a few. Mm. It was, I've never, I've never played it before. I've heard it before. Um, but it's one of those pieces that uh, when you play it, it's like energizing, mm-hmm. you know, as you go through like, we also played the Tchaikovsky Ro- Romeo and Juliet, which to me is not energy. <laughs> but we played the Tchaikovsky first and then we did the still. And then after the still, I always, after every time we went through it, I always felt like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never played it, but I taught it in class when mm-hmm. I uh, taught at SEMO and, uh, there was this great paper about like the references he makes and the English horn and the connection to Dvorak's use of English Mm -hmm. horn. And uh, so, yeah, it's a fabulous piece. I'd love to play it someday. Yeah, it was really awesome. That was the highlight of the cycle for me. Uh, 
And uh, yeah, I just got home yesterday. So I've just been lolling around my house, like catching up on laundry and annoying my dogs. And, you know, <laughs> that's what spring break is for. Absolutely. Well, I got some good news. I actually got some good news about a month ago, but I had to keep it uh, quiet (laughs) until the organization put an announcement together. But I won a pretty big grant uh, from an organization in Washington called the Artist Trust. Uh, They have these fellowships that are unrestricted awards of $10,000. And I worked on this application so hard and so long. And so I was so excited to win. And of course, I told my inner circle, but since the last dish, it has been announced. And so now everyone knows. And um, I'm using the money to commission a bassoon concerto from Connor Chi, who is a composer for the Double Reed Dish Consortium. I'm just a, such a super fan of his works and we are constructing the concerto or he is I've, by my request. It's going to be bassoon and strings. Mm. But you know how like we'll do a Vivaldi concerto and sometimes maybe you win a concerto competition with it and it's full orchestra. And sometimes for a recital, you might choose to do it with a string quartet. Um, this piece is going to be written in such a way that there will be a string quartet version and a full orchestra version and a orchestral reduction. So it will be able to be played and we'll have lots of instrument options. And I'm so excited about it. Uh, I'm sure bassoonists are getting excited too. Sorry, I negotiated for a very long period of performer exclusivity. (laughs) So it will be a while before anyone but me gets to play it. Um, Sorry, not sorry. But uh, yeah, this is a huge opportunity for me. And uh, I thought it could be cool to maybe talk about grant writing and those type of experiences and tips and tricks and all that type of stuff for the dish today. So first of all, congratulations. That is such a big deal. And considering every time we played Connor Chi's trio, I either had goosebumps or cried or both. This is <laughs> going to be such an awesome addition to the bassoon repertoire. Yeah. So yeah, first of all, like huge congratulations. And I think this is a wonderful topic to talk about because uh, I think it's a, an acquired skill, uh, grant writing. And it's something that I I struggle with per- personally. Uh-huh. I never g- actually give it enough time, I think. Mm-hmm. I think I never start early enough um, because it really is a specific language that you have to use uh-huh. in, or- in order to get the reviewer's attention Uh and uh, kind of prove your, your project's worthiness. Uh So, so yeah, I, I mean, for what, what types of things did you do on this grant application that you felt were the real like uh, winners? Yeah. I mean, I think that you make a, a really good point where I was never taught to write a grant as part of my music curriculum. This is kind of a skill you get as you need it, or maybe in arts admin degrees, they teach this skill, but for performance degrees, I didn't get any of this. And I think the first thing to acknowledge is kind of where you are in your career, student or professional, 
and what type of institution, I'm coming at this from a higher ed perspective, but what type of institution that you're at. So there are internal grants available at WSU that are very different and have much different like ceilings and funding levels than when I was at SEMO, there was basically like one professional development grant and it had a cap of, I think like $5,000. So this skill has kind of become more relevant as I've taught at different type of institutions and WSU is an R1. So grant writing is an expectation uh, of what I do. And so they make, yeah, internal uh, resources available. So the first tip that I have is to have no shame in general when preparing to apply for a job or apply for a grant or uh, turn in promotional materials. I'm constantly going to people who've done it before me and saying, can I see what you did? And that's not necessarily to emulate, but to go, oh, this is what a successful proposal is. Can I figure out why I think that this was successful? Um, and our grant office has examples of successful proposals that you can download, mm-hmm. um, which means it's just a Google away. Like there are lots of schools that have examples of successful proposals that you can download and examine for, you know, oh, this is what a exceptional narrative looks like. This is what a budget that gets funded looks like, that type of thing. Um, At WSU, we have a grants and funding office specifically for our college. So we have people who are employed specifically to help us write grants and narratives. So yeah, I always work early enough that I can send it to those people and have several rounds of edits and feedback and telling me what to do differently. And I have no pride if they tell me to do something differently. I just do it because it's so much work to submit a proposal that for me, it's worth that extra work to do it the exact way I want to, to give myself the best chance, Mm -hmm. or maybe now is not a good time for me to apply for this grant, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I find out about a grant and it's like, oh, the deadline's 10 days away, I'll probably just put a note on my calendar for the following year. I probably Mm -hmm. wouldn't try to eke it out in that short amount of time. But I'm sure there are people who disagree with me on that and be like, you can't win something that you don't put your name in for, you know? But yeah, I basically have gone from applying for smaller pools of money with lower stakes. And then as I learned and built that skill, branched out that much more and, you know, not gotten many. (laughs) I definitely do not have a batting average of 100 for sure, especially with external grants. But yeah, I think starting small, there are lots of um, grants for like graduate students or even undergraduate funding. You know, if you just put into your school's search bar, uh, student funding, student research funding, a lot of times there are opportunities where they'll give you a thousand bucks to go to the IDRS conference or something like that and just kind of get your feet wet. I love it. Well, we posed this question to our listeners. Mm hmm. And they have some excellent insights to share. Awesome. Let's check out what they had to say. Okay. So Robin says uh, that they are a symphony grant writer. Be concise with your language and show urgency in your ask. 
Yeah, absolutely. That was feedback that I got. In fact, uh, the grant that I got to go to New Zealand, when I originally submitted a proposal, the feedback that I got from the lady in the grants office was, you're not dreaming big enough. And this is not, basically, I can tell you're applying for a grant because you feel like you should apply for a grant to make your boss happy, not you have a clear project and something that you're passionate about pursuing. And it reads in the narrative. And she's like, it's very difficult to, as Robin says, create urgency or make a compelling case, or uh, maybe you can stand shoulder to shoulder with other proposals, but to stand out and be the one selected, um, there's that aspect of conviction, I think, that mm-hmm. you have to bring in for sure. Mm-hmm. Dylan says, it's a business contract, not a personal memoir. It's a financial audition rather than a musical audition. Receiving a grant denial or revision request is not a personal attack. Provide measurable successes and track record, both quantitative and qualitative. Yeah. Well, and I think that speaks to, you know, the request for proposals, the guidelines. That's gospel, you know, and Mm -hmm. just the same with the cover letter. If you can view that as like, okay, here's my skeleton. Here's everything that I have to respond to. I'm on the evaluative committees mm-hmm. for a couple of these internal grants. And just like being on a search committee, you learn so much from reading everything that has been proposed. And a lot of times it is not following the call for proposals as it has been put out. And then a lot of times also uh, budgets that are a little bit indulgent, perhaps. <laughs> Well, that's very exciting. It sounds very similar to preparing a recital or an audition in the way that you have to give it more time than you think. Yeah. Uh, you have to run it more times than you think, mm-hmm. get feedback and take the feedback. It sounds just like a whole other vein that of something that we already know how to do. Yeah, absolutely. And there is a lot to be said for just doing it. Like, yes, do it in a prepared, thoughtful way. But you can read books about performing and you can take a bunch of lessons. But at some point, you have to just walk out on stage and start to gain experience in standing in front of people and doing what we're doing. And it's kind of the same with grant proposals, I think. Start to dream, start to think about, you know, who you are and what you want to do. And then ask. The most that will happen is no. And you learn from having that experience, you know? And the best that will happen is you get a whole new bassoon concerto by Connor Chi. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's obochicago.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. 
processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barden Kane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Kane, here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. We are so excited and delighted to welcome to Double Reed Dish, Elizabeth Starr Masudnia, solo English hornist of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Welcome to Double Reed Dish. Thanks so much. I'm very excited to be here. Can we hear, I'm assuming you started on the oboe. So can we hear your journey of starting on the oboe? How did you come to play this instrument? I was eight years old and at a private school in the Philadelphia area where I grew up, Springside. And the day before, um, an oboist at that school, Cindy Fleming, had played in the assembly. And the music teacher... I guess she felt I had some sort of musical talent because she told my mother she thought I should play an instrument. And my mother said, well, what instrument should she play? And the music teacher said, well, ask her. And I immediately said the oboe. <laughs> and then um, there was a lot of problems finding anyone willing to teach an eight-year-old their oboe as their first instrument. But <laughs> I finally found the um, Curtis student who was willing to teach me um, his name was Rod Reagan, and it was love at first sight. As soon as I played it, I just felt like this is what I want to do the rest of my life. So that's how I started. Can you tell us about your training and educational journey and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I was very lucky just by chance to grow up in the Philadelphia area Yeah, at that time, um, which was like 70s um I so I started with the Curtis student and then eventually I was referred to Louis Rosenblatt my predecessor in the orchestra so I studied with him for six years through junior high and high school and he was just outstanding musician teacher mentor and um so it's really good guide for me through that process in addition um I took piano and theory at Settlement Music School and most importantly um, had woodwind quintet coachings from a very early age. Um, maybe 10 years old, 10 through 18, I had woodwind quintet coachings. I felt that really served me well for chamber music and also orchestral playing to learn not only how to play by myself, but um, in an ensemble at a very early age. Um, in addition, I played in a lot of community orchestra and the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra was really great too. So um, that was my journey through high school. And then um, I went to the Manhattan School of Music for a semester and studied with Elaine DuVos and had a wonderful time in New York. <laughs> and then um, I was summoned back. I had auditioned for Curtis in my junior year of high school I did not get in, and then there weren't any openings in my senior year, but then there happened to be openings in my in the middle of that year when I was in Manhattan, so I joined Curtis um, in January of, let's see, 
so January 81 and um, got to study with John Delancey, which um, I might not have appreciated so much at the time because he was a very <laughs> strict teacher. But I feel like every year that passes, I appreciate it more. And he really had a very strong influence on my playing. So at that time, I was studying with him, getting to play in the great Curtis Symphony Orchestra. And in addition, um, attending Philadelphia Orchestra concerts every week and hearing Richard Woodham's play, which is just a great combination of uh, examples, mentors, teachers. And um, so that I felt that I just had a really strong base. And then from there on, entered my professional <laughs> career. I would love to ask if you would be willing to share any stories about Louis Rosenblatt. Um, let's see, I'm not the greatest at telling <laughs> stories, but all, all I can say is, um, first of all, he was such a kind person and that was not, that teaching style was not so much in vogue in those days. So mm. I always felt like he sat, he really, um, first of all, he had me go through all the etudes I went through. <laughs> let's see, Barrett, Fairling, Broad, Gillet a lot of excerpts, a lot of solo repertoire. And he just um, somehow inspired me to always play my best. And if he did not play or with my best, was not what he thought it should be. He would just sort of put his arm around my shoulder and sigh. And I, that's when I knew it was really bad. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I always felt like that was actually much more cutting to me than like Delancey was actually very tough. Like my whole second year studying with him, he had his hands over his ears for how horrible he thought I sounded. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but it was actually much more hurtful for Louis Rosenblatt to put his arm around my shoulder because he was always so nice. I knew it had to be really bad for him to do that. So. Oh, my goodness. That's a heartbreaking. He was also great at telling Cavatos stories. I mean, he was that great. He and Delancey, that great second generation of Cavatos students. Um, and he was a great intellectual. He spoke like five languages, studied poetry, and so which I've not nearly his level on anything like that. But anyway, it was really a great time. We'd, we'd teach in the third story of his house. His wife, Renata, would greet me or me and my mother. She was there entertained below, and you would so traipsed up to the third floor, immediately been, been to play. So all the Lewis Rosenblatt students remember being completely out of breath and having to immediately play your lesson <laughs> to climb all those stairs up to his floor. But anyway, <laughs> it was a great, great time. That sounds absolutely charming. I love that. Yes. <laughs> Can we hear about... Um you specializing or primarily becoming an English horn player? Was that kind of organic, situational, or intentional? How did that come about? Um, yeah, so I think almost everyone starts on the oboe as I did. And um, I I guess I got my first English horn when I was 16. And um, so I, I was in the youth orchestra at that time. So if you have an English horn, usually a lot of people don't have an English horn. Sometimes you get some nice opportunities to play. 
solos and I always enjoyed playing English horn. So I, I would do both. Ironically, Louis Rosenblatt did not like teaching English horn, but again, I, I had that, I was going to a Philadelphia Orchestra concert probably age of 12 on. So I had that sound in my ear and I've had this, this example as, you know, just a great player and person. So that path sort of continued as I went um Manhattan school and then Curtis, again, I had an English horn. I was willing to play the solos. And I think every one of my teachers sort of encouraged me on English horn. Um, and then as I got out from Curtis, I just was taking auditions for anything, you know, second principal and English horn. I seemed to do a little better in, in the English horn um, openings. And I realized uh, as that continued, that it was really a good fit for me because I really do enjoy playing solos, but I also do enjoy having a little bit of free time, which principal, oh, I think you have to really 100% be into it. But I enjoyed getting the solos and maybe like a little bit of free time to read books or spend time with family. So I felt mm -hmm. like it was a very good fit for me. So I would love to hear about your audition for the Philadelphia Orchestra. I feel that everyone who wins a spot in one of the major symphonies like the Philadelphia Orchestra deserves to be celebrated, but most especially the women. So I'd love to hear your, um, your audition day story and, uh, and then maybe if you wouldn't mind expanding what it was like to, sit in your teacher's chair and take on that role. <laughs> sure. So that, um, at that point when that, the one thing, if you're playing with Shorn there are, and sort of getting that slot and that's what you want to do, there are not that many openings. And I knew deep down that was really my dream job. Again, I grown up in Philadelphia was Philadelphia Orchestra is my favorite orchestra and I've been trained in that tradition. So on the other hand, I've like been professional for 10 years, the past seven years, last seven years in the Minnesota Orchestra. So it um which was actually a wonderful experience. And I had gotten to go through most of the major English horn repertoire. So that served me very well. And that's something hard to get on English horn is experience playing in an orchestra before an audition. So I was very lucky to have had that experience. And then um, I made sure I set up a lot of mock auditions before the audition itself. But, um, so the thing I remember most about that day is that we had the first round um and honestly, I didn't, I felt like I played well, but maybe not 100% my best. So I was very excited to get to the next round. And I believe there are, and I think I played another round that day. And then um, the next day was the final. So somehow I finished maybe at night and then the next day was the finals. And the thing I remember <laughs> most about that is I literally did not have one single read to play on for that final audition. And I am a person in general, I really like to have enough sleep and just really be prepared 
but I was up till three in the morning yeah. just getting anything to play on for the, that final. And I think I had one read that, I had to play that day and I had no sleep. But somehow I, I played the final round. I thought that went well. And um, again, this was just sort of luck. Right before that audition, I'd been um, recording um, Beethoven trios, which that recording is still out with um, Marilyn Zupnik, who is principal oboe in Minnesota, and Catherine Greenblank, who is principal oboe in St. Paul. And so the three of us, it just happened, we're all Delancey students in the Minneapolis area at that time. And we had just recorded Be Beethoven and Trevency oboe trios. And the final um, part of the final round was, it wasn't really sight reading, but reading the trio of the Beethoven, the Opus 87 Beethoven oboe trio. And <laughs> I just remember, because that has some tricky repeats, and then going back, I just remember going to say, like, like looking quickly, I'm going to be able to read this down, but luckily I'd done that recording, and so it was with um, Richard Woodhams and Jonathan Blumenthal, and I, we just read down that trio, and it went really well, and I, I just felt so excited that I survived that, and then ended up getting the job. That just shows you it was meant to be. Uh, <laughs> something but I, I do feel very lucky that it turned out that way it really was um, my dream job and I got to play in the orchestra of my dreams and it's been a that was 95 so <laughs> something like 27 years later here I am so you are steeped in the Philadelphia school or style of playing. And we have a lot of listeners who are perhaps international or who are younger and may not know uh, what exactly that is. So could you describe to us what makes the Philadelphia school different? Well, that is a very good question. <laughs> and I've been trying to come to terms with that my, myself. Um, one thing for sure is that there was a very special time in the history of Philadelphia music making, um, which is around the time when Stokowski came to the Philadelphia Orchestra. And he's the conductor that really put the Philadelphia Orchestra on the map, extremely magnetic, um, charismatic conductor, and who really was the one who built the Philadelphia Orchestra. And he's the one who asked Marcel Tabato to come play principal oboe. And my understanding is that at that time, there was no tradition of playing in, in America. It was basically everything at that point came from Europe and mostly German, but um, Stokowski really liked Tabato. So um, there were certain, some German players and some French players when Stokowski and so he asked, Marcel Tabato on oboe. And again, Tabato is such a great musician and charismatic person, apparently outstanding teacher. And around the same time, uh, the Curtis Institute of Music was started, and that was the outstanding music school. And they it was unusual that they gave scholarships. So Tabato 
in addition to playing in the orchestra, was teaching at Curtis. And all the best musicians were really drawn to that school. And so he had an enormous influence on teaching. Um, and it really spread from there. So what I would describe it is Tabata came, he went to Paris Conservatory, had a great tradition of teaching. And there was a way of phrasing that started maybe broad on that was um, suited for orchestral playing. Before that, in Baroque playing, it's a little different kind of playing. For orchestral playing, you really have to really have a nice line. And um, most of Marcel Tabata's teaching um, was how to really express yourself within that tradition of playing using a line line on the wind. Um, and then in addition, I think very important to the style of playing is beauty of sound. Um, and Stokowski described that sound wasn't over also only for the oboe. The entire orchestra had that sound and Tsukowski described it as diamond wrapped in velvet. Mm. Um, and so I, my understanding is Tabato also de uh, developed a style of reed making that would achieve that sound and also taught um, the style of phrasing. And not only to oboists, but violinists would come to him and all over the orchestra. So... <laughs> I hope that's clear. I've been trying to come to terms with it myself. But um, another exciting thing that's happened to me this year is I've been asked to join the board of the Marcel Tabato website, which I, ashamed to admit, I did not even know existed, but it is really a wealth of information. I have not even tapped 1% of it. Um, but I hope everyone listening at least takes a look at that website because um, there's a lot of uh, recordings of Tabato, um, recordings of it playing, recordings of it videos of, and recordings of his teaching, a lot of writing about him. Um, so I encourage everyone just to find out for themselves because uh, it's really uh, sort of the roots of all of the, a lot of the American style of playing the oboe. And it's just very interesting unto itself. Um, I was surprised just to hear a lot of his recordings because I, again, I've heard the legend of him playing, but hearing um, the recordings, which again, I don't think he, the recording equipment was not that great. And I'm, everyone who's heard him play in person um, just says way better than recordings. But um, I was surprised of all his students. I thought his playing, what I heard is um, honestly closest to Delance's playing and that was his choice of his predecessor in the orchestra that's fascinating we have had um obviously many orchestral players on the podcast and many of them speak about the distinction between getting the job and then what you learn doing the job and i wonder if we could hear your thoughts and experiences on being a member of an orchestra of this caliber and um, maybe what you learned when you joined that was distinct from uh, 
or, or doing pro, uh, professional orchestral playing, I guess, not necessarily specific to Philadelphia. But yeah, what, what did you learn doing this job? Yeah, I guess, um, well, my first job was right out of school and it was with a smaller orchestra. I have to say that 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 was probably the biggest shock for me. <laughs> yeah, I really have, didn't have a clue. I mean, uh, I just thought it was this young hotshot out of Curtis. Uh, and it, just as far as it was so different doing orchestra job from what, you know, just my experience as a Curtis student. So I guess a lot of um, what I learned was, um, first of all, how to pace myself. I'd been used to just practicing a lot every day. And um, with an orchestral job, you really have to make, in my opinion, make the orchestra first and make whatever you're playing that week the focus. So sometimes it's better not to practice that much, but just... (laughs) have reads and yourself ready for the concert that night. Um, also just to be really prepared for whatever is on that week. And also just to look ahead, like make sure, cause often you don't have a lot of time to recuperate if you're usually rehearsing the, that week for what you're playing. So to look ahead and really practice ahead for what's coming up. Um, another thing I was totally unprepared for was politics in orchestras um so what just what I've learned or what's worked for me in general is I just think it's really important to always keep in mind to put the music first and put your priority on being the best musician you can and um basically your responsibility is it's your part and of, to be a supportive colleague as you can to everyone else around you and try not to be overly involved in anything beyond that, if possible. <laughs> That's excellent advice. Switching gears uh, to your latest project, I'd love to ask you about your newest solo album, called English Horn Expressions. Um, It has such an interesting origin story. And I would love to hear you tell us about how it came about and uh, maybe uh, describe some of the pieces that you chose to be on this album. Oh, yeah, thanks. And um, actually, this this is my first solo album. I um, had recorded the... um, like I mentioned before, the Beethoven Oboe Trio album right before um, I got in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And then I got in the Philadelphia Orchestra. It was, um, that kept me really busy with keeping up with the quality of playing in the orchestra. And then I got married pretty soon after that and then had two children. And that kept me pretty busy for 25 years. (laughs) And I I felt like... I just felt like that was that was sort of enough. The orchestra being having a great husband and two remarkable children, and that was that can be busy. And then then the lockdown happened, and I was able to sort of reassess, and it was just sort of remarkable. I thought, okay, um, orchestra twenty five years, um, married twenty six years, 
my two children are both seniors and one was senior in high school and the senior in college. They were, we're all sort of home together in the lockdown. I thought, wow. Um, I was really happy. I thought I really accomplished a lot of my dreams. I was proud of that, but in the back of my mind, I thought the one thing I haven't done is a solo album. And uh, I have to say my husband and mother who are, just have both were quite sick at the time and I was trying to help them out. They were really both encouraging me to do this. And I really thank them for that. And as soon, you know, we, at the time we weren't able to play with any other player. And I, it was really unclear <laughs> whether it would be called back into the orcs right away or whether there would never be an orchestra using English horn again because orchestras, if they're playing at all, were often very small orchestras because of um, the pandemic. So um, I used it as a time to really sort of revamp my playing. I was sort of, it was really the first time in a very long time I was able to practice without um, any goals. So I and sort of switched to read making minimal and practicing maximal and and I thought that was really good for me and um as time went on I realized okay I've done that and I started pulling out any solo English horn repertoire and I started practicing that and then as the album idea came I thought well honestly I feel English horn often is best by itself um I was thinking of like the Wagner Tristan and Isolde solo, um, Symphony Fantastique, you start by yourself, like three-cornered hot, you're by yourself. Um, but this is a, a way that sort of we can expand English horn beyond what it's doing. And I also felt like I wanted to show not only what I was capable of as a player, but also what's possible in the English horn, because I'm just hoping that the English horn is the orchestral instrument that composers will continue <laughs> to write for the English horn and maybe even expand the kinds of solos that they write for English horn within their repertoire. Um, alternatively, I realized that um, it's very hard to get uh, experience playing English horn horn and orchestra and this is a way for those interested in playing this the english horn um whether you have an orchestra job or just like playing english horn to maybe be able to perform it. um and all of these pieces are recorded completely stand on their own um it's a great selection of a varied composers um and every piece i picked for the album was just a piece that i just loved playing and I wanted the world to hear. And I'm just hoping that everyone who listens either, I think there's many levels you can listen to this album. One is it's 63 minutes of English horn alone. So anyone who's not sure what the English horn is or what it sounds like here, you can definitely know what the English horn is and sounds like, um, Another way you can listen is just have these remarkable composers. They're all um, stand on their own and um, 
I hope that those who are inspired by the composers listen to the composer's other um, compositions. That's another way to listen to it. Another is just, like I said, I feel like I'm a representative of um, this legacy of Tabitha teaching and um, just how the English horn sounds within that that legacy of playing. I would love to hear a, a little bit more about the repertoire. Like if we have a listener um, who's thinking about programming a solo English horn piece on an upcoming recital, are there any standouts or hidden gems that you discovered that you'd maybe want to, you know, advocate for in terms of programming? Um, yes. Again, I, I think every piece is, Great. And one thing I'd like our listeners to tell me, because I think it's fascinating um, what their favorite piece is, because people have been coming up to me and everyone has a different favorite piece, which I think shows what a great <laughs> selection it is. So it's, oh, you I can listen love to that, that. Well too. Um, well, one of my favorite stories about pieces and a great piece is the first piece, The River. Um, and this is one that really sprang out of the pandemic. Kevin Arthur was uh, an oboe student of mine online and the orchestra uh, set me up with him because he, uh, he he was a student in the area who wanted oboe lessons. He played in all city and went to the performing arts school around here. And um, so the more I gave him lessons, we really got to know each other through online lessons for the pandemic and he was a junior in high school at the time it it became really clear that he liked playing the oboe in English form but his true true calling was as a composer and so I let the orchestra know that and they set him up with a composing teacher and then as my project was continuing I thought well why not I'm just going to ask him if he'd be willing to write for English form and he ended up really writing this wonderful piece for English Horn in the River. It really should has technical and musical challenges. And he used that um, at, to, in order to apply to colleges. And he's ended up studying with Valerie Coleman. Um, they both happen to be African-American. And uh, she's, the orchestra spotlighted a lot of her pieces. And so I just thought that was a great example of, just someone coming out of the pandemic, a, a good part of the pandemic that we were able to have that time to use it. And it's that's a wonderful piece to play. Um, another piece that I think really stands out, it's, I really like it because it shows a different kind of English form playing that I don't think has been written too much. And it came out of this project. I have been recording um Alfred Goodrich was a recording engineer and he had a studio quite near my house and his he was a composer as well but his teacher was Robert Maggio and I just happened to run into him in the recording studio and he had, so I just on a whim asked him to write a piece and he wrote this wonderful piece Dance on a Volcano and that was um, I would say that's the jazziest piece on the Pro, uh, on my, the album and <laughs> he really got after me because I recorded that several times he did not feel I was <laughs> um, 
He really, uh, both of them had to train me a little bit in that uh, method of playing. So it was really good for me to play a different style. Um, and again, I think this sort of expands the English horn's horizons. Like there, yes, we can write in different styles for English horn and the instrument can carry it off. So I think that's um, a really great piece too. Um, and let me see, as far as, um, again, they're all great, but another favorite of mine that it's actually probably the first solo English horn piece that I played. I remember when I was in Minnesota, it came out. It's by Lord Michael Berkeley, and it's called Snake. Um, and I remember I was so excited when that piece came out in Minnesota. I was getting like sketches of the piece and I performed it on a recital there. And again, that um, really shows a slightly different sort of sinister side of the English horn and also has, you know, the slow and quite challenging technical part at the end. So those are three pieces that all stand on their own or could also be part of a recital. That is phenomenal. And okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna transition us into uh, commissioning concertos for English horn because one of the movements on your album is the solo third movement of Besad Ranjbaran's Concerto for English Horn and String Orchestra, which you premiered in 2015. Did you get, okay, so I would love to ask about the commissioning process there and the premiere. And I'm wondering what the audience reaction was to an English horn concerto. That um, particular commission, I was very lucky. There's a local group called Network for New Music that spotlights new commissions. And they, um, I have been communicating. I was part of the group and asked for a number of years from them to commission a piece. And they came through and um, Ranch Baran had been a student of Persichetti. Persichetti was a local composer, and it, there's a piece by Persichetti on my album. And um, Persichetti also wrote an English horn concerto to celebrate some anniversary of Persichetti. They decided to commission Ranch Ron to write that piece. So that was interesting. And like every composer is different. Um, Ranch Brown is very meticulous and definitely a perfectionist. So as a um, that went along, I would send him recordings of my playing, and he was very picky and very um, – he wanted it really everything exactly as he wrote it. So it's really interesting for him to uh, coach me through that, and it was a great experience to play with that group. And I, you know, I think everyone was – really excited to hear the piece and um I thought that was really interesting how he wrote that Grave Lamentosa to stand on its own and I was excited to be able to just record that movement by itself on this album that's really a challenging movement and that it it's all slow but it goes extremely low and extremely high and to be able to pull that off (laughs) is a very good re-challenge, re-challenge among other things. So um, 
that was sort of the story of that commission. Whenever we talk to people who play in these really big orchestras, the ones who get to tour nationally and internationally, I always wonder if there are any special stories or memories or experiences that you would be willing to share. It's such a um, unique opportunity that only so many, you know, orchestral musicians get. Yes, I have to say uh, that's one of the many perks of playing in the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, we do so much touring and so much different kind of touring. So I put it sort of in two slots. One is just the extreme privilege of being able to play in many of the great halls of the world. So um, playing in the Music Rhine of Vienna, what a great experience. It's such a beautiful hall and again a hall with so many traditions and stories um and then on the flip side we also occasionally get to go to um places in the world that are really extraordinary that I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to go so the ones that stand out there is um we've done many uh trips to China but um, especially I really enjoyed going to Man Mongolia. What a fascinating place. And I did a great day tour there with my daughter. We went to to a yurt and mm -hmm. <laughs> saw the, um, were just the steps of the planes there, just to be able to go out and see um, a country still in development and something sort of like that, just a, tour about 20 years ago we went to uh, Vietnam and that was just an incredible experience I will never forget just seeing everyone in Vietnam the majority of them were pedestrian were, at that time were walking everywhere and then so most people on the street in Hanoi were walking and then scooters and occasional cars and I did some tours there and just sort of being able to experience that that's something I will never forget either are there any projects or performances uh coming up that you're really excited about that you would like to tell our listeners about well I'll say at the moment I'm concentrating on getting the word out about this album and then I'm just Really happy um, that orchestras are back to playing with and programming full orchestra concerts. So full meaning 100 plus musicians on the stage, which usually means an English horn is involved. And we have some perform. I just completed a tour of Florida where we did New World Symphony. So it's great to be able to do that again. And we have. Rite of Spring and Symphony Fantastic coming up. And we have some nice travel back to our summer festivals at um, Vale and Saratoga. And believe it or not, because we had a European tour last year, it's unprecedented. We have another European tour this year in November doing a lot of Rachmaninoff, which great writing for English horn. So the... Um, Orchestra will website is philorc.org, P-H-I-L-O-R-C-H.org. So anyone interested in 
all of those activities can find out the details there. So since this is a double read podcast, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about reads. Can you give us some English horn read tips and tricks to help the (laughs) budding aspiring English hornists listening? Uh, yes, it's, um, so one tricky thing about playing the English horn and the oboist is there's so many things that are the same, but yet it's a slightly different, um, slightly different animal. So I feel like it is good to know some of the things that are different. So, um, I'll briefly tell you the equipment that's been working for, for me. I, um, I've been using a Mimi shape uh, for a very long time. I tie it on at 59 millimeters with a 27 millimeter Rigatti brass tube. Um, I feel like English horn, for me, that English horn reed should throw a C. Um, one thing that I think is slightly different from oval reeds is the blend between the heart and the tip, I think should be more blended than an oval reed tip. Um, and then one thing I find fascinating is I use a reed micrometer that measures the heart on all four quadrants, the middle of the heart. And it's this, for me, it's the same on oval as an English horn, which I measure uh, up to the fourth line. It's 40 millimeters for oval, 40 for English horns, which I just find mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, so if that means, if you're looking at proportionately, I'd say the heart seems to be a little thinner on on English horn reeds than oval. And then um, I am a big proponent, and this is controversial in the English horn world, but I like using... Um, a wire on English horn reeds. I will say that comes to me straight from Louis Rosenblatt. He always, and it's important, the size and kind of wire. And this is straight from him, a 24 millimeter soft brass wire tied five millimeters above the thread. I tie it on after I finish the reed and play on it mostly it's a little easier to scrape the reed that way, but it's a little bit laziness if the reed doesn't work at all. When I spend time putting wire on, mm-hmm. although it doesn't take that much time. I also mm-hmm. will say it's a little bit of, uh, I think one reason some players don't use wire is if you put it on wrong, it's worse than no wire at all. Mm-hmm. So that wire needs to be put on, uh, it should be tight enough that it stays up, but not, if it's too tight, that's good. And if it's a little bit loose, that's bad too. So I, you always need to have needle nose pliers with you because sometimes it, depending on the humidity level while you're playing, it might need to be adjusted. But um, for me, that wire uh, is part of the, it gives me more power. And and for me, part of that Philadelphia English horn sound is having that wire on the reed just, it gives me a, bigger, rounder sound. So that's, that's so interesting. I that's wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah. I actually didn't know that there was a controversy around wire. I thought most people did wire. 
Uh, you would be surprised. There are some very established English horn players, in, at least in America, that do not use wire. And, and they sound great, too. But I'm just saying that seems to be what works for me. And I have to say, I keep on experimenting like with students who come in with that wire. I say, like, well, let's just try and see. And I, most of them, I think, agree with me that their reads sound better with wire. But again, I say that's something people can experiment with because I, I will say there are established English horn players who sound great without wire, but that's what works best for me. So the wire does not manipulate the opening. The wire is there for resonance. Correct. And okay, somehow it adds sense. power and someone who would be better, who knows more about physics or other things would be better explaining beyond that. <laughs> yeah. That's so fascinating. I wish <laughs> I wish I knew more about acoustics, but I'll take your word for it. Okay. <laughs> Try it yourself, because I think that's really, um, I think that's something to watch out for, in my opinion. If you, if you a lot of double reach shops sell wire uh, thinner than 24 gauge, and to me, that does nothing. Mm. Um, and also, if it's not soft brass, uh, it's too, it's hard to manipulate. So the soft brass is very important, but I, and put put on the right way. I I also think power, and that's very important for English horn because we're um, especially in orchestral playing because we're in the at that alto range, and a big part of playing English horn in orchestras being able to have that power to project for large solos. So it, it's critical for English horn playing to be able to project over. And then on the flip side. Another hard part about orchestral English horn playing is those soft attacks, say opening a mile or one, or sitting there for a long time and having to come in with a perfect attack on any note, which Mm -hmm. is an unfortunate part of our job. That's super fascinating. We're approaching the end of the interview, but I wanted to commiserate for a second because, (laughs) yes, it's difficult to play loud and it's difficult to blend at the same time. It's just kind of the worst (laughs) of both worlds there. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) So we are about to end this wonderful interview. Before we go, Elizabeth, where can people find English horn expressions? One way is just to go to Nirvana Recordings, N-A-V-O-N-A, and it should be uh, first on their website. Um, It's also on my website, which is englishhorn.net, E-N-G-L-I-S-H-H-O-R-N.net. And I should mention that Parma Recordings has helped get the word out about that release. It's also available on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and other streaming services. That's fantastic. I anticipate that we have lost every single listener because they have all turned off the podcast and gone to Spotify. I'm sure. Turned on. (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. We really appreciate being able to talk with you on Double Read Dish. Thank you so much. I really um, appreciated this opportunity to speak with both of you.
Well, we hope you enjoyed that awesome episode and that you will follow us on social media. On Instagram, we are getting precariously close to 3,000 followers. If you want to help us out with that, we definitely wouldn't mind. And be sure to rate and review on pot on what is it? Apple Podcasts? Apple Pod, the iPhone, the thing you look up <laughs> podcasts on your iPhone, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube. We're a little behind. Sorry. That's okay. It's I won't, <laughs> I won't be up, updating YouTube on my spring break. Maybe summer. Uh, we love you. Thank you so much for listening. And Jackie, go make reads. Uh, your wish is my command. <laughs>